Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. For nearly 50 years, the sleight-of-hand artist Ricky Jay has been obsessed with an 18th-century German man. Matthias Buchinger was an artist, a magician, and a calligrapher. He was also 29 inches tall and born without hands or feet. Most people of that size uh, would have been exhibited for their size. And there's only one piece in all the memorabilia I've uncovered about Buchinger where he's actually billed as a little person. Everything else is, is talking about his skills. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Ricky Jay. He'll tell me about some of Buchinger's skills, which include super, super tiny calligraphy. The incredible detail in his art might be easily missed if you're not looking closely enough. We look at his wig and we see what we think are curls. And we now look closer and closer. We're able to determine seven complete psalms written in English and in the tale of the Baruch, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Then later I'll talk to the menswear expert Bruce Boyer about whether it's really important for a man to develop a sense of personal style or if it's okay to just walk around in shorts and old T-shirts. A lot of people uh, don't take clothing seriously at all. You know, they say, oh, I just wear what I want and it doesn't matter. And I always think, well, those people kind of deserve what they get. He's a nice guy, I swear. Plus, stand-up comedy from Brandy Posey's new album. And I'll tell you about the British comedy sci-fi horror film John Boyega starred in before he moved to a galaxy far, far away. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Matthias Buchinger was called the Little Man of Nuremberg. He was also called the Greatest German Living. He was small, maybe two and a half feet tall. He had almost no arms and legs, and he did amazing things. He's the subject of a new book by the writer, actor, historian, and sleight-of-hand artist Ricky Jay. Jay's been fascinated by Buchinger for half a century. In his book and an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, detail the remarkable achievements of this tiny man. He played musical instruments of his own devising. He was a gifted artist. He performed sleight of hand with the cup and balls. He had 14 children, detailed on a spectacularly illuminated family tree by his own hand, or actually by some other appendage because he didn't have a hand. Ricky Jay himself is a rather remarkable man. He's one of the world's great sleight of hand artists, the author of numerous books on the history of unusual performance, and a favorite guest here on Bullseye. Ricky Jay, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jesse. Happy to be here. So what was the first time that you encountered Matthias Buchinger? By which pronunciation, by the way, we have agreed to uh, <laughs> with no basis. <laughs> the whole thing is funny. The spellings of his name and the, the, the variants that exist. I think the first footnote in my book is about variant spellings and pronunciations. Matthias, Matthew, Matthew. It, it, Whatever uh, he could take advantage of in terms of attracting an audience in different countries, he would do. And we really don't know how he pronounced his name. So when, where did you first find him? I actually can tell you specifically. It was in a book that I was very fond of as a, as a, a boy magician. It was called The Panorama of Magic. It was a Dover publication written by a man named Melbourne Christopher who was the leading historian of magic in his day and a friend of my grandfather's. And it was a lavishly illustrated uh, history of magic with uh, short pieces on the entire range of magic from uh, uh, prehistory up to uh, the current magical scene. And in it, there were a few what turned out to be 19th century portraits of Buchinger. Buchinger was born in 1674 and he died in 1739. So these prints uh, that were reproduced in the book were were uh, rendered after his lifetime, but they were accurate enough to make him an interesting-looking character. <laughs> and certainly when I read of his accomplishments in this book, 
which was uh, primarily magic since it was a book about magic. It was about his ability at sleight of hand and all the puns intended on that since he had no hands. I was instantly intrigued. What what captured you about him other than he, that he was very distinctive looking? And we can get into what he looked like in a minute. Well, I, I think it was this, this incredible combination of what he must have done to allow him to overcome physical uh, attributes he had or didn't have. The idea that he did perform classic effects of magic and also seemed to be adept with cards and dice. But then the real key was, uh, even as a kid, I was interested in calligraphy. And what I think unquestionably was his greatest achievement were these remarkable calligraphic documents, which he was able to do by cutting a quill and and uh, balancing it between his two appendages, uh, which were, I guess, most easily called stumps, and probably uh, to more modern audiences might have appeared to be uh, the configuration that you might have seen with people who uh, suffered from thalidomide. So it was the combination of all of these things. But the calligraphy he did was utterly extraordinary. Describe the way he looked specifically. Well, he 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 had uh, no real limbs to speak of. He had very shortened thighs, which he would wrap with leather upon occasions to dance the Scottish hornpipe. And then he had a fairly conventional upper torso. He was not what was considered a, a dwarf. He was phocomelic, which I think in medical terms implies the shortness of limbs, more specifically than 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 any other physical configuration. So from the waist up, he actually looked uh, not unlike other people of the day. What would one see if one went to see his performance? Nowhere is there a complete rundown of what he did from beginning to end. There are eyewitness accounts of some of the feats that he performed. Uh, But since his venues changed, it's hard to know if he did the same thing every place he was. I, I, I dare say I can answer that by saying he changed his show. But he would have done the performance of any number of singular skills, which he had learned uh, as a young man. Uh, That's our conjecture because he doesn't seem to have been forced to exhibit uh, at an early age. And the earliest piece I have signed in his own hand is not until he was about 30 years of age. But that repertoire consisted of um, doing trick shots with a pistol or rifle, darting a sword towards a target. Uh, doing trick bowling shots, uh, sending uh, a ball through various skittles and avoiding uh, lit candles and still knocking down pins. Knocking down pins with uh, uh, cups of liquor on top without disturbing the cup of liquor. I liked that one. Yeah, that was pretty astounding, I would say. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Ricky Jay. The actor, sleight-of-hand artist, and historian is the author of Matthias Buchinger, The Greatest German Living. There's a corresponding show at the Metropolitan Museum in New York, Wordplay, Matthias Buchinger's Drawings from the Collection of Ricky Jay. It seems to me like there are two distinctive things about this man and his life uh, that you wouldn't expect. One is that he displayed these extraordinary skills rather than simply exhibiting his uh, physical difference. And the other is that it seems like he had something like a normal non-performative life as a young person, which must have been unusual for someone who was so physically different, you know, for whom there were relatively few you know, it's it's not like he could just say, like, oh, I'm just going to get a, a motorized wheelchair and work at a bank. Um, so I, I wonder, like, what do we know about his life before he was 30 and started performing that we know of? Nothing, really. I, mean, I, I Little bits here and there that come from material that's only published after he begins to perform. But there is that implication. Somewhere he makes some joke about about uh, uh, performing when he's younger. But it, it, it seems to me clearly to be a joke. Um, I, I think there really is every reason to assume his parents were were. He was the the ninth of nine children, and that they were 
thoughtful enough to keep him from performing uh, as a youngster so he could do whatever was required to uh, to live a life and to acquire the skills that would eventually uh, allow him to make a living. I mean, but it's not exactly like you can go to, you know, Miss Martha's school for calligraphy, oh, uh, Skittles. Uh. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so, so that's a great question, but unfortunately we don't know the answer to how he did any of those things. Did he have a tutor who, who showed him calligraphy? I mean, the Met actually, um, uh, based on no, no material that I've ever seen, thinks that he studied with Johann uh, Puchler, who was another calligrapher of, of the period who lived reasonably close to Buchinger. But I, 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 like I say, I've never seen any document that made me assume that that actually was true. It's a pleasant conjecture. Um, so we don't really know. And then the other point you raise is really interesting as well, that most people of that size uh, would have been exhibited for their size. And there's only one piece in all the memorabilia I've uncovered about Buchinger where he's actually billed as a little person. Everything else is, is talking about his skills. And there are a couple of things that make that interesting because uh, other little people of the period and periods both before and after, their commodity was the size. So when they went from town to town, basically they had to be hidden because if you saw them, that was it. That was the show. So they were sometimes even carried in uh, planquines uh, by people on their shoulders or hidden away in uh, in carts or wagons, and Buchinger seemed to have no problem at all with being seen because that was only the beginning of the show you were, you were eventually going to become excited about. Would he travel alone? Would he travel with a show? Well, again, that, that's interesting as well, and you know, we have scattered references over the many years of his life. That's another extraordinary thing, which is he lived to be 65 years old. So that's well longer than the, the normal uh, time span, even for a perfectly formed uh, specimen. Uh, but he did travel an awful lot. He, he went from Germany, which is where he was born, uh, off into the continent, and then eventually uh, came back to, um, uh, well, came to the British Isles. And he spent the last 22 years of his life traveling throughout England, Scotland, and Ireland. And it's in Ireland where he eventually died. One of the most interesting documents about him at all is uh, of his many wives. He had four wives uh, and 14 children. Uh, his last wife uh, was initially from the Palatine, from the, the German region of the Palatine. And there was an edict which allowed uh, people in the Palatine to apply for certain aid. I mean, this is getting technical. At this period, uh, there are Hanoverian kings in England. So the Georges that he performed for were, in fact, German. And he may have been a favorite for that reason. But in his petition uh, to get money for his wife, who is in the Palatine, he, he writes this thing. And you'd think he's talking about a modern rock and roll band. He's saying, <laughs> I travel with these people. The expensers are such. And people have seen me. I've been to these towns so much that my show has been seen. And I'm in need of aid. It's, it's just remarkable. He's overexposed is what he's telling us. Can you describe... Uh piece of his stronger micrography that you find uh, particularly impressive or beautiful? Sure. Um, it's interesting to me in a way that uh, my show at the Met is based largely on original drawings. But the most iconic piece that Buchinger did comes, we think, from an original drawing of his, but it's actually, uh, it's actually an engraving. And the engraving shows Buchinger standing on a pillow in a pose that he frequently uh, appears in. Um, and when we come in closer on this, on this portrait of Buchinger, and we look at his wig, he's wearing this peruke, and we see what we, are, what we think are curls uh, in, in his hair and in his wig. And we now look closer and closer. We're able to determine seven complete psalms written in English, and in the tale of, uh, of the Baruch, uh, the Lord's Prayer, clearly and specifically written. So it is an amazing thing. When you see this print, um, you first just think it's a self-portrait. You have no idea that, that this other uh, incredible work exists. And this is interesting because it's both uh, the idea of Buchinger having done this initially 
And then an engraver who was paid an extraordinary amount of money in 1724 to reproduce this as an engraving and actually make these letters backwards so they could then appear uh, perfectly when, when the piece was printed. But uh, I think there's no one who sees this who, who wouldn't uh, get some, some feeling of, uh, of excitement from, from it. You, you just instantly get how amazing this is. It's Bullseye, and I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the writer and sleight-of-hand artist Ricky Jay. There is a wonderful segment of your book which I would describe as uh, Ricky Jay shows his famous friends uh, and expert friends uh, some Matthias Buchinger stuff and says, hey, what do you think of this? Um, what did you settle on as far as your feeling about how these pieces were created? Well, I, I'll go to that in a sec. I think first, yeah, I do have some friends who are well-known artists and and – the reason I was asking them for their opinions on Buchinger is because they're well-known artists. That, right, that, that sure, was the of course. point of that. And they're widely varied, and they had different views, and I do find what they had to say exciting. So these are people that go from uh, Art Spiegelman to Eric Fischel and April Gornick and Tom Sachs and David Hockney. And, I mean, the list goes on not much longer than that, but to have people commenting on how they think he made these drawings. And the reason for that is probably the first question anybody asks me. And it's very much like, how did he do this trick? It's very much like the question asked the magician, not um, about the beauty of it or the context of it or how he learned it, but how, in fact, someone was capable of doing calligraphy this tiny. And most people naturally go to the next, uh, the, the seeming answer to that, which is he must have used magnification. If, in fact, one needs magnification to see the piece, wouldn't one need magnification to create the piece? And I think of, of the, the people that I asked, most of the people who had a real knowledge of calligraphic skill were more inclined to think that he did not use magnification. And I should say, and this is emphatic, that I have never come across a single document that ever says that he's using magnification in his ability to create these pieces. I mean, one of them seems like it is, and it's one that you would actually have a unique uh, insight into as a performer relative to David Hockney, for example, is simply that as soon as he introduces magnification, it's a less cool show. Well, I, I would say that I, I kind of disagree with that because I'm a great believer in, in what Hockney talks about magnification in terms of painting. He's written an awful lot about that. That that the idea that early artists, Van Eyck and many people that he writes about, used magnification doesn't, to me, take away from the beauty of their art whatsoever. The difference is that the beauty that we're talking about in Buchinger's case, in, in, in this specific case, is in fact the size of what he was able to render. And that's what makes the argument different in, in both cases. You uh, write in the book that, that you fell not that long ago and broke a rib and um, some stuff in your hand and wrist. I know that the kind of performance that you do involves incredibly long-term, diligent practice, like everyday practice at a very small scale with both hands. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you when that happened? Well, it, it was uh, pretty frightening. Um, I had a, a titanium plate and seven screws placed in my wrist and had to have a second operation after that. Um, but it did allow me, I think, to get a little closer to Buchinger in the sense of realizing that there were some things I had to rethink. It wasn't simply a matter of being able to do everything I've done before, but I think realizing as I probably will be unable to do everything I've done before, I certainly am going to be able to do uh, a great deal of what I did before, that I have to approach things in a slightly different way. I have to rethink them. And I believe that that's what Buchinger did when he approached uh, the cups and balls, that his method for uh, lifting a cup and revealing a live bird would be quite different than the method of someone who, uh, who wasn't uh, conformed as he was. Had you ever gone an extended period of time without practicing 
say, just pre- working with a deck of cards? That's uh, I realize no one's asked me that before. Um, no, I'd have to say um, I haven't, and that's maybe one of the strangest things now. That um, yeah, I'll, I'll actually leave the house occasionally without a deck of cards in my pocket. Oh, I do have one now, <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Uh, uh, for many years of my life, I uh, I wouldn't leave. Also, of course, they were my chosen method of self-defense. If I were attacked on the street, that's what I'd want to have with me. So, what have you been able to regain and and regain less? It's it's hard to say in terms of percentage. I've never really thought about that. But the cards don't feel as good as they should in my hand all the time. And I realize that practice. Uh, of that kind of duration often has more to do with comfort than it does with a specific skill. We're into a, a very specific area about practice and how one practices and are they actually trying to make each time they perform something better or to understand it in fuller context. And I think that's important in terms of improvement. But I also think that there's a certain amount of pleasure derived from simply having an article that you're comfortable with in your hands. And I think in cards as weapons, I actually joke about a deck of cards being a meditative tool, but it's not that much of a joke. Uh, There really is some genuine comfort that comes from that. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. I'm talking to the magician, sleight-of-hand artist, and historian Ricky Jay. His new book is Matthias Buchinger, The Greatest German Living. One of the things that this book is about, above and beyond it simply being about Buchinger the man, is about you and this kind of lifelong pursuit that you've had of these little scraps of information. And when I say little scraps of information, I guess I mean it literally often, um, about this man and his life. I I wonder if you could tell me um, the furthest you've gone to acquire something in your really extensive collection. I mean, not the literal furthest, but what is the most you have done to get a a thing? I I don't think I can reveal those machinations. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was talking to this stranger on a train. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, well, I, I mean, there are stories that, that I tell in the book. Well, uh, for instance, I'm happy to tell you the story of the first piece I acquired, which was from the magician Melbourne Christopher that we spoke of earlier. Christopher, as I mentioned, was friends with my grandfather, and he was quite a formal fellow. I remember the first time I said to him, uh, Mr. Christopher, um, I'm really interested in Matthew Buchinger, and do you think it would be possible for me to come over and see your collection, and particularly the pieces relating to Buchinger? And he said... Uh, I'm kind of busy this year, Ricky. <laughs> I managed to overcome that, which in itself may answer your question. But uh, eventually, um, by calling him every time I, I came back to town, he did invite me over. And uh, we renewed our friendship from when I had been much younger. And uh, at the time, I, I'm guessing I was in my 20s. Uh, I happened to get a job performing in the Shakespeare Festival in Central Park. It was actually my first acting job. I was hired initially as a consultant to do a levitation of Titania from the Bower in uh, Midsummer's Night Dream. Uh, and uh, I was also offered a role in the, in the play. And so uh, he lived uh, very close to the park on Central Park West, and uh, many times during the run of, of my particular summer in, uh, in New York, uh, I wound up going to his apartment, and you know, we really enjoyed talking about magic and the history of magic. And one day he said to me, uh, 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 Ricky, I'm planning to sell uh, duplicates from my collection that are in my house in Baltimore, and if you'd like to choose one, I'd be happy to have you do that. He said, I won't give it to you, but I will give it to you at a fa- – I will sell it to you at a fair price, which I'm sure would be uh, considerably less money than the auction house, uh, Swan Auctions in New York, uh, would be selling it for. And I came over to his house, and um, I looked at many objects, and I chose a book that was uh, a truly rare book. It was actually the first magic book ever published in New York, the Dukinick edition of uh, Hocus Pocus Jr. by Henry, uh, excuse me, Hocus Pocus, not Hocus Pocus Jr., by Henry <laughs> Dean. 
and uh, this one from 1817. And, and he seemed very upset uh, that I had chosen this, even though he was trying not to. And it turned out this was really the book he wanted to feature in the sale. So he offered me, he said, well, could I possibly take something else? And I chose another book and uh, he complimented me on it. But the other book happened to be imperfect. It wasn't completely intact and I think he saw that I was a little upset. Uh, even though I was trying not to be and he was being very generous. And so he said, well, may I offer you something else? And I said, well, what I'm really interested in you can offer because it's not a duplicate. I said, I know you have two drawings by Matthew Buchinger, but as they're drawings, you know, they, they can't be – they're unique. They're drawings. And he said, let's look at them. And he took out the two drawings and we, we stared at them for a while. And, and then he said, pointing to the smaller of the two uh, – um, what would you be able to give me for this? And I had just agreed to buy this other book for, um, even though it was a reasonable price, what for me then was a lot of money. And I blurted out a figure which was incredibly small. I mean, I can tell you, I, I said $50. Um, and he looked horrified. And he said, is that all you think it's worth? And I said, no, no, no. You asked me what I could afford to pay. And I should mention at this time that I was making, I think, $90 a week in the New York Shakespeare Festival and living on a friend's couch on 37th Street under a sign which said, we do not lease to theatricals. <laughs> and uh, I just didn't have money. And he, he said, could you make it 75 And I said, of course. And he went uh, uh, out of the room and came back with the piece. And he then put it between the hard covers of another book, which was actually quite a desirable book, a biography of the magician Robert Heller. And he put it in this other book and handed it to me and said, a stiffener to keep the, the piece, the drawing on vellum from being in any way mangled. And that's how I got my first, uh, my first Buchinger drawing. It seems to me that part of the uh, appeal of collecting and part of the appeal of learning magic, at least as, as you've described it to me and, and um, have described it elsewhere, is that kind of small-scale, intimate relationship with someone else who really loves this thing that you love, um, like whether it's 65 Mustangs or whatever. Mm -hmm. But that there's so many stories in this book that are about I went over to this guy's apartment so he could show me his stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, collecting is uh, – on some level, it's it's the same whether you're meeting with someone who's an expert in, in the field, in sleight of hand, and and then someone who, who doesn't perhaps perform magic at all. Certainly, the vast majority of people who collect these rarities are, are not performers. But they can often exhibit extraordinary passion about them. And you do wind up in, in these tiny little worlds where you're discussing uh, this utterly arcane material. And, uh, yeah, one, one would say I've, I've traversed uh, many, many a country looking for pieces and getting into crazy situations with folks. And I think there are a lot of stories in the book about being unable to purchase things initially and able to then get them 20 years later or 35. The, the story about the Melbourne Christopher and, and the two pieces that he had, the one that he sold me then, literally a couple of weeks before I finished the book, I was actually able to obtain the other piece, which had <laughs> eluded me for 35 years. Do you find that when you are reading about these people who put on these elaborate and unusual forms of performance, that admiration is one of the main feelings you have towards them, even when the performances can lean towards the, you know, the absurd or the ridiculous. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm more inclined to enjoy them when they lean towards the absurd <laughs> or the ridiculous. But sure, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, will you there, – there are these lovely verses describing Buchinger in the book. Um, and we talked briefly before we came in here and you have a clear favorite and even know a bit of it. And I wonder if you might recite what you can. 
Well, it's from a broadside that, that may indeed be unique, um, uh, and it's called Matthew Buchinger, The Greatest German Living, uh, hence the title of my book. And uh, I'll see if I can remember enough of it to make some sense. See gallants wonder and behold this German of imperfect mold. No legs, no feet, no art, no hands, but all that art can do commands. First thing he does, he makes a pen. Is that a wonder? Well, what then? Why, next he writes and strikes a letter. No Elzevirian type is better. Upwards, downwards, backwards, forwards, and short to every compass point, though shortened at the elbow joint. The foliage round it he displays does more our admiration raise. For hair figures, to the eye they pass, but their letters through a glass. Thus he with double art can write, at once to please and cheat the sight. Well, Ricky, I sure appreciate you coming back to be on Bullseye, and I hope you'll uh, come back whenever you're up to one of these amazing things that you're always up to. My pleasure. I'd love to come back. Ricky Jay's new book is called Matthias Buchinger, The Greatest German Living. It's also associated with a show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, which is running right now. After a break, we'll have stand-up comedy from Brandy Posey, and I'll talk to Bruce Boyer about the one article of clothing that no man should live without. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Every week, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour brings you a fun and funny conversation about the best in movies, TV shows, books, music, and more. From breaking down the Oscars to in-depth discussions with Trevor Noah and Shonda Rhimes, you're bound to hear something that makes you happy every week. It's Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Find it now at npr.org podcasts and on the NPR One app. Podcasts. 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 <laughs> They're audio programs that tell smart stories in innovative ways using editing techniques like, like this. this. Like this. Like this. Yeah. But let's face it, all that smart stuff can be exhausting. That's where Stop Podcasting Yourself comes in. It's so stupid. It's just two stupid dinguses being dumb idiot jerks for 90 minutes. Stop podcasting yourself. The stupid show that smart people love. Find it on iTunes or MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Brandy Posey is a comedian and podcaster. Her funny feminist chat show, Lady to Lady, actually runs on our podcast network, Maximum Fun. Anyway, she just released her debut comedy album, Opinion Cave, and we wanted to share some of it on the show. So here's Brandy Posey on the anxieties and pressures that come from being a millennial. Here's another thing you guys can do if you're feeling frustrated with your place in the world. You can just add yourself to your high school's notable alumni section on Wikipedia. <laughs> you go to Severna Park High School, Severna Park, Maryland, and Wikipedia, two state senators, the guitar player from Good Charlotte, and good old Brandy Posey podcaster. <laughs> Screen cap that, send it to your dad, and be like, television's a dead medium, look at the internet, it says I did something. That's <laughs> all you have to do. But like, Wikipedia, I think, is also a very humbling website if you let it be, because no matter what anybody in this room does with our lives, like, we could have the person that cures child AIDS cancer in this room. <laughs> like, all of it, like, someday that will be a thing, and then you're the person that cures it will be in this room, but they're not, they're definitely not. But... <laughs> for the premise of the joke they were that person even after doing that nobody on wikipedia would take the time to lovingly craft a biography for them the way that somebody already has for fictional billionaire scrooge mcduck <laughs> you guys if you go to scrooge mcduck on wikipedia there are hundreds of pages on thousands of fictional ducks that never existed, going all the way back to the cave ducks, which weren't a thing. <laughs> cave ducks were never real, and they're all over Wikipedia. I don't even know my great-grandparents' names. <laughs> that's insane to me. It's just like, that's like that's who we are as a people now, because like I don't know my parents' wedding anniversary, but I know all the words for the DuckTales theme song. <laughs> And that's just a sad, weird fact that kind of bums me out. If you understand the joke structure that I am referencing, 
because you were raised by pop culture, because your parents were both too busy working a series of jobs to fulfill some sort of Reagan-esque dream. So they put you in front of a television, making you a latchkey kid to snick in Disney afternoons. <laughs> To make up for the fact that they were just trying to beat their parents, but their parents killed Hitler, and how the hell do you top killing Hitler? So they just amassed wealth at the only time this country's actually let people amass wealth, and then you were just left alone staring at a boob tube, you might be a millennial. <laughs> I don't know if you guys are those people. <laughs> I definitely am. And it's a hard time to be us right now because we keep getting blamed for stuff. And we haven't been alive long enough to do anything wrong, really. <laughs> but, like, I, I also don't think it's necessarily our fault because we were given participation trophies for 20 years. <laughs> and if you tell everybody they're a special snowflake, too many snowflakes make slush. <laughs> So we're just gray slush in a gutter, and then we like got out of college with all of our creative writing degrees, and we're just like, wait, I have to pay car insurance every month? <laughs> all of the months? <laughs> DuckTales, woo. <laughs> oh my god. Why did you give me so many credit cards when I was 18? And you gave me so many free t-shirts for credit cards. You never taught me how to use them. Why would you do that to me? Oh my God, I have so much debt. I need a doctor. My heart's beating so hard. How much does a doctor cost? <laughs> do you guys remember the TV show Gargoyles? <laughs> do you guys remember Gargoyles? Brandy Posey. Her album is Opinion Cave. You can find out more at brandyposey.com. And while you're at it, check out her hilarious podcast, Lady to Lady. I liked it so much, I signed it up for my podcasting network. Seriously, they are the best. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you saw G. Bruce Boyer on the street, you might assume he was a particularly elegant college professor. In fact, he was a particularly elegant college professor as a younger man. But for the last 30 years or so, he's been one of the world's best writers on men's clothing. He was maybe the first American man to write for Luomo Vogue. He's written for Esquire, Harper's, The New Yorker, a bunch of others. And unlike most fashion writers, he can actually write. And he avoids the haughty doctrinaire pronouncements that plague a lot of menswear writing. His work can show you how to dress, sure, but uh, Bruce is also a sensitive observer of the sociology and semiotics of clothing. As the post-baby boom generations mature, menswear has exploded as an industry, and Bruce Boyer's in demand again. His latest book is called True Style. Hey, Bruce, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to get to talk to you. Well, thank you, Jesse. You know, your 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 praise is so effusive. I, I'm sure there's no way I can live up to this. So I think we should just end the interview right now. Oh, don't worry, Bruce. It was all intended to be sarcastic. The whole Good. thing was sarcastic. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. So we, you we, know, we set a low bar. As, as, as Americans, we're kind of deficient in our sense of irony. So I'm glad to see that you have a sense of irony. So, Bruce, I, I want to start by asking you this. You have been, you've been a menswear writer since the 80s. And I, I wonder if you see men's relationship to clothing as significantly different in the last five years or so as uh, millennials have become adults and Generation Xers have uh, entered middle age from from what you saw when you started or, or when you were a young man in the 50s and 60s? Oh, oh, absolutely. You know, the big and permeating difference has been the the internet when i started out years ago you know when there were still dinosaurs roaming the bronx and that kind of thing the only way you you found out about menswear was through magazines but um in the past 10 years and more i mean the blog sites on men's clothing have just proliferated and what these guys have done, and I think you you probably know this better than I do, is they've kind of just 
sidestepped or gone right over magazines. Uh, I mean, if you know, if I want to find out what's going on, and I, I shouldn't say this because I'm a I'm a fashion journalist who's been devoted to magazines forever. But if I want to find out what's going on, I look at some blog sites. You know, I know you have a, a very good blog site. I would say that I probably spend the first hour of uh, my working days during the week monitoring about 30 or, or 40 blog sites. So that's the big a difference there is that so many more young guys know so much more about clothing. In fact, I find it harder and harder to, to keep up with you young guys. So I I take one step ahead by taking two steps backwards. I keep going further and further into my past to mine the roots of, of menswear and get out the history of it. And that that seems to more and more interest me, but but part of it is because I I uh, can't keep up with the bloggers in a sense. You know what I mean? Sure. I I wonder if the relative absence of uh, consensus about how men should dress changes the way that men dress, and particularly the way that people define men define themselves through mm. dress. You wrote a book called Rebel Style, and it's hard to imagine yes. what Rebel Style is in 2016. Yes. I think all of those uh, categories and, and genres and things, you know, they they actually used to represent something. They, they, they used to reflect a better word we might call lifestyle, you know, where the, the guys who wore motorcycle boots and and uh, black leather jackets and so forth. They actually rode motorcycles and belonged to the Hells Angels and whatever, and it was their their lives. But it, it doesn't constitute a lifestyle anymore. It constitutes a pose. So, yeah, I think uh, I know what the bloggers talk about most in regard to that is the difference between the terms Ivy League clothing and preppy clothing. You know, Ivy League clothing was um, a kind of lifestyle-dressed elite wasp establishment. Preppy clothing is kind of the designer version of what Ivy League was, and you wear it as a costume more than a lifestyle, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, certainly so. And but you know, it can it can also be you know it, it's also something that in the last twenty years or so can be worn, you know, can be worn either purely aesthetically or as a, as a message uh, that essentially subverts its establishment roots, which is something that probably wouldn't have been available in 1965. Well, I, I think both of those are true. A lot of people do take up clothing in, in aesthetic uh, terms. But yeah, I think, I think particularly uh, younger guys, there, there, there is a kind of uh, very interesting uh, subversive element to it. Actually, I don't know. I think my feeling about it is I like the diversity of it all. So I really don't care too much if there's, you know, a great deal of authenticity behind it because I just like the diversity of seeing people wear different things. And I've I've kind of always been opposed to um, uniforms on people and, and up until – the 1960s, that's really what, what guys wore. I mean, if you worked for a big corporation, you wore a dark suit and a white shirt and a discreet tie and, and black lace-ups. And it, it was a uniform uh, just uh, as other uniforms. But now we don't need that as much. And I like the diversity a lot better than the uniformity that used to be around. So I'm not... I'm not unhappy by any of that at all. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to menswear expert Bruce Boyer. His most recent book is called True Style. 
is wearing tailored clothes, uh, a suit, a sport coat, uh, a shirt and tie, a, a realistic lifestyle choice for uh, a, a young person, somebody who works in an office where, uh, you know, they're not a lawyer or a banker um, and they're not surrounded by people in coats and ties. You know, today, very few people wear suits out of necessity, but that makes them all that much more interesting. You know, a guy who buys a suit, and particularly uh, a guy who buys a good suit, you know, which is a uh, a bit of an outlay of uh, money and so forth, he does it because it's a choice, not because he has to, not because he has to wear it as a, a uniform, but he does it because he he wants to look different, that it, it gives him a little something that the casual clothes don't give him and, and separates him from the herd a little bit and hopefully... Um, it makes it easier for him to uh, meet uh, uh, young ladies and the, the the whole thing. You know, in other words, it 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 becomes um, a tool of choice, not a tool of necessity, but a but a tool of choice. I know a public radio audience reasonably well. You know, we go out on the road and do shows, and so I know that a lot of people, and especially a lot of men, listening to this right now are thinking, clothing is functional for me. I buy affordable clothing that will cover my body, protect me from uh, the elements, and be comfortable. You know, a a polar fleece vest is uh, lightweight and keeps me warm. Why does it matter uh, to do more than that? As a bald a statement that's perfectly true, but you know uh you could live on boiled potatoes too why would you why would you go out to a nice restaurant um why would you do anything? Yeah, you could wrap a rubber sheet around yourself, and that takes care of the 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 the, the functionality of things but i've uh there's more to life than just eating bread and living in a cave. So it's 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 not just functionality at all. I mean, we have uh, have needs that that go way be- beyond that. I I I'm I'm always fond of saying um that there's a fine line that you you have to walk when you discuss clothing and when you write about it whatever. I mean, on the one hand, a lot of people uh, don't take clothing seriously at all. You know, they say, oh, I just wear what I want and it doesn't matter. And if, and I always think, well, those people kind of deserve what they get because the <laughs> fact <laughs> because the fact is, you know, that that the the impression you make and it, it is important. You know, your sense of humor, your sense of manners and etiquette, um, the, the, the way you look it it's kind of the opposite of people in the fashion business who who absolutely think that fashion you know the current fashion is a cure for cancer mm-hmm. uh when of course it's 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 nothing of the kind but there's there's that fine line it's it's both more important than uh a lot of people think it is but it's it's less important than the fashion community thinks it is in fact i'm I kind of take a little bit of pride in in thinking of myself as the the black sheep of the fashion industry because I never advocate fashion. I I never advocate um you know burning your old wardrobe and going out and buying the the latest idiocy that's out there. I've always maintained that you should buy uh the best you can afford and and keep it forever. I'll finish my conversation with Bruce Boyer after a break. We'll talk about high fashion and get some some remedial advice for all you guys wearing cargo shorts right now. Does that make me sound like a jerk? I mean it with love. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Check out the NPR One app for your phone. Use it to listen to Bullseye 
And it's a great way to find tons of new shows and stories, too. Great hand-curated podcasts and stories are always ready when you are on NPR One. Find it on your app store, NPR O-N-E. Hello, and welcome to Podphone. What type of podcast are you looking for? You have chosen funny podcasts about bad movies. Rated R. May we recommend The Flophouse. Three friends talk about bad movies and make each other and you laugh. Rated R. The Flophouse is playing at your ears. If you download it right now or whenever. Rated R. To purchase tickets to The Flophouse. You don't need to do that. Just download it. The Flophouse. Rated R. For nudity, I guess. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bruce Boyer, the noted fashion critic and author of the new book, True Style. What, how do you feel about capital F fashion, fashion as art and aesthetic exploration? I'm probably not the best person to ask about that because I've never really been a fashionista in, in any sense of the word. Occasionally, somebody says to me, you know, do you, do, you, do you have any rules about dressing and so forth? And I say, well, not rules, but I do have some general principles. And um, let me see. I would say one is that simplicity is usually a virtue. Uh, two, that it's probably um, – uh, the best thing to do to buy the best you can afford and 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 keep it forever. And I I never let my wife throw anything away, you know, on me. Uh, I, I'm also a great one um, for for never sacrificing comfort to fashion. So all in all, I'm I, I'm pretty much a, a classicist and a conservative. I'm not trying to make people spend a lot of money, which is what most fashion magazines are about. I mean, fashion magazines, the whole modus operandi is, you know, burn your old wardrobe and buy this new stuff. And I'm I've always been kind of the the the, the opposite. So I'm I'm never really that that interested in fashion. I've I've always more or less believed what Oscar Wilde said about fashion, namely that fashion is something so ugly it becomes necessary to change it every six months, you know. And I I, I think that's perfectly true. Now, as an industry, of course, I'm biting the hand that feeds me. So I, I, I don't want you to tell anybody that, you know, I've said this. I recently read uh, David Marks' book about uh, about Japanese Japanese menswear. Yeah, yeah. And one of the most interesting themes in the book was, and I think you know we can agree that Japan has been uh, a huge influence and uh, perhaps the you know the fastest growing influence on the world of menswear in the last twenty years or so, and um, maybe even thirty years. Um, mm. But one of the one of the themes in that book was uh, a really interesting cultural difference, which was the divorce between uh, lifestyle and fashion aesthetics. That in the United States, mm -hmm. there you know there remains to some extent, although it might be reduced in younger people, the presumption that uh, that clothing reflects lifestyle, um, yes. and that especially for yes. younger people in Japan. Uh, that presumption simply did not exist and does not exist. Right. Um, and I wonder if that kind of purely aesthetic and systemic way of dressing that Japanese young Japanese men have pursued in the last uh, 40 years or so um, has influenced people internationally to be more free in their choices and less beholden to those cultural associations mm. uh, that that might come with their clothes. Well, I th I think that's true. You know, in this is just my my opinion, but I think that uh, Japanese fashion magazines are the best in the world. Uh, I, I just I just find them endlessly fascinating. Even though I you know I can't 
I can't read the text, but I can I can read the the the, the photography, and they're brilliant. But there's some there's something um, interesting about that that ties in with what I was just saying about craftsmanship. You know, the the the, the Japanese have an incredibly high regard for craftsmen, and interestingly enough. Um, the Japanese are very, very interested in Italian clothing because they see a kind of kindred spirit with the Italians who are also interested in craftsmanship. You know, up until very, very recently, and still probably in a general sense, the Italians controlled the top end of the, the menswear market and um a lot of the craftsmanship of italian fashion still comes out of southern italy particularly around naples where there is still um a very high percentage of handwork put into garments that that come out of neapolitan factories uh you could almost say that some of these factories are um conglomerations of craftsmen where if, if if you go into the factory there there's some machinery but what you see is people sitting around doing the work in their lap you know they're 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 sewing they're sewing collars on and 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 sleeves on and so there there is still this regard there and the japanese as it happens are very very aware of that if you look at the japanese fashion magazines they keep you know they used to years and years ago it's still true but not as much as it was that there was an incredible um american influence on japanese the ivy league clothing preppy and so forth but now what you see more and more is is the the italian influence particularly the uh, neapolitan influence and I think it's because the Japanese have an incredible rapport for the craftsmanship of it all. You know, the the, the fine Italian hand. I th- I think that there's a there's a um, a kind of kindredship in all of that. It's bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bruce Boyer, the noted fashion critic and author of the new book True Style. Okay, Bruce, let's get serious here for a minute. Uh, yes. I'm yes. no longer I'm no longer Jesse Thorne, celebrated fashion blogger and beloved NPR host. And and industry. You you're not a person, you're an industry, Jesse. As Jay-Z once said, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Let's let's presume I'm Joe Schlubbo, uh, who is a guy who's just finished college wearing cargo shorts and Cheeto stained shirts. Or yes, has yes. just uh, entered his 30s wearing uh, cargo shorts and Cheeto-stained shirts. Uh, right. Or is 42 and has realized that his entire wardrobe is uh, cargo shorts and Cheeto-stained T-shirts. Exactly. Where does that guy go from there? A, a, like a guy that makes forty five, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year uh, and uh, works in an office where people wear different kinds of clothes. Yeah. Um, what can that person do to to uh, to, to, to become take some a decent yeah to become a to become a decent person you mean <laughs> yeah i imagine be, that to, would involve prayer and public service to, or something like that well it, well exact that was my first uh thought you should pray and uh of course you should vote you know uh funnily enough i do get asked this question you know, usually from fathers who have sons that are just graduating from college and um, they have, uh, you know, a job coming up or an interview for a job coming up or um, the father realizes that the son is entering uh, what we jokingly refer to as adult life and, uh, you know, what, what, what should he wear? And I say, well, um, the, 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 the obvious solution, and this isn't, uh, you know, anything worthy of the six o'clock news, but you go out and get a good blazer. 
because the the the, the thing about a blazer is um you can dress it up or you can dress it down. You can wear it with jeans. You can wear it with khakis. You can wear it with, uh, you know, gray worsted trousers. You can wear it with plaid trousers. You can you can do anything with it. You can you can wear it with a with a polo shirt. You can wear it with a a shirt and a tie. You can wear it with a turtleneck sweater. You can, you know, do anything with it. So it's it's the it's the the one all around garment that uh, everybody should have. But that's the that's the uh, that's the first step is to have a have a jacket that that you can you can dress up or down that will travel well, you know that kind of thing. That so that would be an obvious place to begin for for Joe Schlub. Probably step two is the ascot, right? No, or, you would know you say every that's three is it two or th- here's my question: Is an ascot step two? Or step three. You know, I think you're just getting at me now because every <laughs> you're, you're taking advantage of me, Jesse, now, because I started out this this my latest book, True Style, with a chapter on ascots. And everybody says to me, ascots, Bruce, come on. You know, what, what, what are you living in the 19th century? You know, uh, do you write with a quill pen, you know? Uh, and my point about that was, and I, I think I did make a mistake. I shouldn't have, uh, I shouldn't have said ascots. I should have said scarves. My point was, uh, you know, you've got me in a corner here. I'm defending myself. But my point, <laughs> my point was that a lot of guys don't know what to do with their necks, and. Some guys' necks are okay and some are not. And um, I think there's something you can do with your neck instead of leaving it hang out there while everything else is kind of nice, nicely upholstered. And if you don't want to wear a tie, fine. That's, that, that's okay. But, uh, you know, a nice uh, scarf at the neck is wonderful. You know, the the whole French nation is built on the idea of a scarf at the neck, Jesse. Those <laughs> Liberty, guys, egalite, egalite, and scarves, and scarves at the neck, and scarves um, at the neck. You know, you if you walk around Paris, you you see scarves tied. There there must be the French guys must know a thousand ways to tie a scarf. It's incredible, and, and some of them look good, and some of them look bizarre and elaborate, be, you know, beyond anything you 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 can imagine. But um, I've I come to have come to the conclusion that the whole French nation was based on cheese and scarves and a little wine. Well, Bruce, I'm so grateful that you took the time to come be on Bullseye. It's always great to get to talk to you. Thank you, Bruce. Are we are we we finished? I had about eight thousand more things I wanted to talk with you about, but. Okay. Bruce Boyer is the author of many books, the latest of which is called True Style, The History and Principles of Classic Menswear. It's available now. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's called The Outshot. So at first, I didn't watch Attack the Block. It came out a few years ago. I remember hearing how great it was, but I heard the word horror in the description, and I ran the other direction. It's not that I'm against horror movies. I am just afraid of them. But it was movie night the other night at my house, and all these people on Twitter said that I should watch Attack the Block, and I put it on, and boy, am I glad I did. Attack the Block is an alien invasion movie. These creepy things are falling from the sky. They look kind of like a cross between a mandrel and uh, maybe a warthog, but with these big glowing teeth and these totally pitch black bodies, they're pretty scary. But anyway, it's Guy Fawkes night. We're in London, and there's all these fireworks everywhere, so folks kind of aren't noticing this alien invasion. Except for these kids, a little gang, like a junior gang, 14, 15 years old, just some kids cruising around on BMX bikes looking for trouble. And, as it turns out, finding way more than they expected. 
You know what that is? I'll tell you what that is. That's an alien, bruv. Believe it. Must have come from outer space trying to take over the Earth, innit? When I landed in the wrong place, though, you get <laughs> the wrong place. <laughs> Welcome to the end, brother. This is the block fam. The B L O C K. The main guy in the gang is this kid called Moses. John Boyega plays him, the good guy stormtrooper from Star Wars. And he's kind of a scary kid. He's a believable gang leader. But you know what his face is like if you saw that new Star Wars movie, the way it lights up? He's a little more sullen in this one. But you still see every feeling play across that face. He's in a constant state of trying to control his awe, trying to look tough. It's an amazing performance. Anyway, the story of this movie is pretty simple. These kids and this white lady that they rob at the beginning, they have to fight these monsters from space. The gang have this tiny world, just this one apartment tower, the block. Maybe a few streets in either direction. But it's something they really believe in. It's their place. And finally, for once, their place is in the middle of everything. They're not pushed out to the margin of the city, the margin of the social structure, These aliens are coming to them. But nobody really believes that it's real, besides the kids, so they've got to save everyone else. There's one helicopter out there. Copper chopper. Ain't even military. And it's only around these ends. This ain't London-wide. This is localized. It's exciting to see teenagers in a movie played like teenagers. The movie doesn't really judge the kids for getting into trouble doesn't really glorify them getting into trouble either. It just lets them do their thing, have fun, be teenagers. It's a celebration of this wild, malleable time of life. When your world doesn't extend that far past your nose, but you're not afraid to jump off a cliff into a big hole because what's the worst that could happen? I mean, who even cares? Let's go. You know what I mean? When you're half a kid, half a grown-up, when you're always scared and also never scared... When all you care about is home and all you want to do is leave home. And these guys, they're whooping and hollering and shooting fireworks and then they're legit scared and you really basically just want to give them a hug? Which isn't the reaction movies usually want you to have toward a gang of poor boys from the hood. It's kind of a special thing. Oh, and also, there is just a ton of butt kicking. Rear kicking? Aliens are butt kicked just all over everywhere. It's great. And uh, it's not too scary. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian X. Perello. Our production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer in charge of Maximum Fun and knowing the difference between Guy Fawkes Day and Guy Fawkes Night is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally, thanks to the Go Team and to their label, Memphis Industries, for our theme music. Thanks this week to our friend Neil Rauch at NPR New York for engineering help. Always great help from Neil Rauch. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org or open up your favorite podcasting program. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff besides what you just heard on this great show, check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture hosted by the brilliant, hilarious, insightful comedian Guy Branham. Pop Rocket. Find it at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.